those costs all get buried in. So, and, and by the way, you're not able to see what those costs are. No. You're not able to manage them. Thirty thousand, forty thousand, ten thousand, whatever. I may not have the liquid cash to inject into the account. So, some may see it as a added benefit because now I can put more money into the account. But some may see it as a disadvantage because now I'm now made to put more money into the account. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Well, welcome back to the second part of the episode on the topic of individual pension plan, also known as IPP. We're going to continue our discussion with my good friend, Terry. So let's go to the um, investment products, right? We mentioned a little bit about that. What are the different types of, and again, we don't need to be specific. We just need to kind of know the broad categories of things that we can invest inside a IPP because IPP is just an account. There's no investment. So what are the different products we can put into our IPP? Yeah, so the the IPP is suitable for holding um, individual stocks and bonds, bond funds, equity funds, mutual funds, index funds. You can hold index funds, ETFs. You can hold ETFs. You can hold exempt product. And if I'm not mistaken, but I won't confirm this, they are uh, looking at expanding into products like um, particular gold bullion. Okay. Gold is a hot uh, topic nowadays. Yeah. And uh, don't quote me on this, but I think they're even looking at things like Bitcoin. Oh, uh, probably not yet. Uh, But it's coming. It's coming, right? It's it's inevitable that we'll be looking at Bitcoin. Uh, I just want to add one more. Uh, sure. And that is psych funds. Right. Uh-huh. Because we're going to be having a podcast on psych funds. And so definitely IPP will hold psych funds. And and guys, everybody, hold your horses. We'll have a podcast on that. So we'll all know what psych funds are uh, a bit later. I would add just for the psych funds, given the extra layer of protection and the cost of that protection that goes around a psych fund, uh, it may not be the uh, ideal for inside the IPP because the IPP, at the end of the day, acts like a seg fund, just a big, big seg fund. Right. But, I, but I, we won't go into that here. I mean, because that's a little complicated and we have a further another podcast coming up. Exactly. To speak of that. Exactly. But I think there's one uh, feature that I think we should at least mention here uh, is that in the seg fund, uh, the capital is protected either at 75% or 100%, and it could be reset. And so for people who are interested in uh, capital preservation, Psych Fund is probably a good product within an IPP. What do you think, Terry? I, I would, um, you know, it's, let's say it's, a, it's, let's say it's up for debate. We can come back to that in the, uh, in the Psych Fund podcast. Okay, perfect. 
Um, so another question for you then, this might be a, a bit of a head scratcher. What about uh, life insurance, whole life insurance inside an IPP? That uh, let, let's remember that the um, that the IPP is an, an at the end of the day it's an investment account, and yes. I do I know that people do look at their life some of their life insurance products as investment type accounts, but at the end of the day, uh, the life insurance, um, the whole life insurance, universal life insurance, at the end of the day, it's 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 a life insurance product. So uh, in my, in my uh, opinion, that's like, I'm not even sure you would be able to hold it, but I'm not sure it would be ideal inside your IPP. It's, it's ideal inside your, uh, a permanent life product is ideal inside your corporation as a complement to your IPP, definitely. At least something to think about, um, but definitely uh, a permanent life insurance or universal life inside a corporation makes sense. To so, me, it's a it's a no brainer. We yeah. we we talked about the fact that an IPP is a pension fund, and so therefore, beyond all those things that you mentioned, we can also invest in uh, other private equity funds or other pri- uh, private capital market products that deals with all sorts of investments. We did a podcast with uh, Stephen Friedman, who's an EMD dealer. And so in those products, sometimes they could be investing in uh, private equity loans to governments to build infrastructure. For example, loaning money to the Canadian government to build highways and to build hospitals or loaning money to the U.S. government to build uh, electrical dams and, and whatnot. So and, you know, some of us like for myself, I, I would like to invest in a let's say a uh, company that invests in building more long-term care, for example. And if so, if such a fund exists, uh, I could invest into that private market. And so that would be eligible for an IPP account. Correct. Correct. And so those are much more broader in, uh, than what an RRSP can offer in that account. That's correct. How do I maintain this IPP every year? How complicated is it? What are the things that we need to do? Like I said earlier, you want to, uh, in setting up your IPP and maintaining it and managing it, both the investments inside the IPP, but also the management and the maintenance on an annual basis, uh, actuarial uh, uh, projections. Mm-hmm. These are these are things you want to be working uh, with your professional advisors. Now, uh, I, we mentioned this earlier, and I just wanted to back up. Some people might look at that as a reason or a disadvantage to managing uh, or to setting up your own individual pension plan. But if you think that's expensive, don't forget, those are to tax deductible to your corporation. But think about Getting into, uh, you mentioned, I think you mentioned HOOP or other employer provided or association provided pension plans, those costs all get buried in. So, and, and by the way, you're not able to see what those costs are. No. You're not able to manage them. Now, those, those who are in the employer sponsored plans, they are paying for the expenses. They just don't know it. 
because it's hidden inside the expense of that pension. But at the end of the day, the pension doesn't eat up those costs. The pensioners do. So they pay for all those costs. They just don't know how much and, and how deep. They don't get to write off the tax deduction. And, and, and nor do they get to control Correct. what those costs are. Correct. You know, you don't realize what you don't see. And unfortunately, uh, all the costs that are hidden, uh, you may not know that they're there, but they are definitely there and they're eating away at your pension if you have one of those employer-sponsored uh, pensions. Here, at least you see them, you pay for them, but you also get to write them off. Exactly. Which is more tax efficient. That's right. And, I, and again, you said some people will see this as a disadvantage. I actually see it as an advantage because I like to take control and I like to know what I'm paying for. I agree. And so there are some costs to maintain this every year. Uh, the, it's the same, you know, you still need an accountant, you know, whether you do an IPP or not, right? Every year I need to file taxes. So I still need an accountant. It's not like the cost is more. The, the accountant may charge you a little bit more for, for you to do the IPP. Uh, you don't need to pay a lawyer every year. Once it's done, it's done. So there's no lawyer fee every year. But there is a actuarial projection uh, that needs to be done every year. And so that needs to pay to the actuarial firm. So I believe that's one of the recurring and ongoing costs. And again, they're not that much. Typically, they're less than $1,000. And again, those costs could be tax deducted off your corporation's income for that year. Yeah. Now, now the, the IP, there is a, and I know that uh, I believe you're going to get into this at a later date. I don't know if you would call, but the target amount uh, expected into your IPP is normally set. Uh, there is a newer product now called the personal pension plan where you're allowed to adjust that on an annual basis. Okay, so this is a good segue into my next question, which is if our investment is not doing what we want it to do, it's not ideal, and we're not hitting that 7.5%, because that 7.5% with the 2% target contributes into the formula of our defined uh, benefit. And so if we are not meeting those targets this year, we, in fact, need to uh, put more money into the account. And so that may be seen as an advantage, but it also may be seen as a disadvantage because in that year, if I am short by 30,000, 40,000, 10,000, whatever, I may not have the liquid cash to inject into the account. So some may see it as a added benefit because now I can put more money into the account, but some may see it as a disadvantage because now I'm now made to put more money into the account. That's correct. And so if our investment is not performing the way we want it to, we may be asked to inject more money. And depending on how much liquid we have on hand, that may become a challenge. Okay, so, but you also brought up another word, which is PPP, uh, personal pension plan, as opposed to IPP, which is individual pension plan. Uh, don't worry, guys, we're going to be talking about that uh, very, very soon. And we are going to have most likely a very, very long discussion with the CEO 
of the company that uh, delivers PPP, which is a new product on the market. Correct, uh, Terry? Can you just maybe give us a little background on that? PPP or personal pension plan is actually, a, it's a proprietary product of a um, company uh, here in Toronto, Ontario. And uh, what they've done over the past couple of years is they've taken the basic features and benefits of the individual pension plan and they've, um, they've expanded on them. Uh, so which makes the personal pension plan uh, much more flexible than the individual pension plan. And uh, only a couple of years ago, the, in, the, the, you know, the, the uh, features of the individual pension plan were clawed back somewhat by the uh, federal government. So these uh, folks at uh, Integris uh, have been able to work with the uh, Canada Revenue Agency uh, and thereby expanding the features and benefits of the IPP into what is they call uh, the personal pension plan. So I don't know if you guys remember Uncle Bill. And when I say Uncle Bill, I mean Bill Morneau made some changes in 2018, which significantly... Uh, put some limits on what a professional corporation can do with the retained earnings and the passive income. So there are some laws that have been passed to the tax laws as it relates to passive income and anything above 500000 And so the IPP um, has been sort of redone and re-looked at by this particular firm, and they come up with this product called PPP. So we'll discuss that later. But it's a newer version of a pension plan for professional corporation and small business corporation. But what we wanted to do today in this particular podcast on IPP is one to explain what IPP is, because this is still what the norm is in across Canada, because this particular company is only in Toronto. So I'm not sure that it is well known in the rest of Canada yet, but also to bring to the fact into light the fact that professional corporations like dentists, doctors, and lawyers can create their own pension plan. I want to jump to the last maybe two questions. And and this comes to the question of who are the ideal people to get an IPP? Like, should everybody who's incorporated professionally do an IPP? Are there any features that make IPP ideal for that individual or for that corporation? That's a a great question. The ideal person is someone that is approximately 40 years or older and earning more than $75,000 a year. And if you're in that category, then you're ideally, you're, you're able to benefit from setting up an individual pension plan. Normally, you would uh, you would either be connected to a private corporation, whether it be a small business corporation or a professional corporation. And uh, one of the features we didn't mention was the ability to uh, do a one-time transfer of your RRSPs in setting up your IPP. You'll have wanted to be uh, incorporated for approximately five to ten years. You know, a lot of people always say or ask. Oh, uh, is it too early for me to set up a corporation or does it matter? Or if you're thinking about doing an individual pension plan, it would be ideal to set up your corporation as soon as possible. Because anything that, uh, although you may not be setting it up an IPP right away, that five to 10 years 
of contributions into your RSP will be the basis for the start of your IPP because you can, there's a formula that calculated where you can transfer uh, a bulk, if not all of your RSP into your individual pension plan. And in doing so, it gives you a huge tax deduction at the same time. I want to I wanna just elaborate on these two points because these are crucial and I don't want the audience to miss it. Sure. So one, I'm, I'm of the opinion, it is my own humble opinion, not being an accountant, and I'm going to go against most accountants out there. Here's, here's my thought on setting up professional corporations. Every single doctor and dentist out there needs to set up a professional corporation in the year that they have a salary jump. Okay, so a a resident who comes out in July and starts working in July that year, don't 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 bother setting up a corporation. You could if you want to, but you don't need to bother. But starting January the next year, that's when you need to start setting up your corporation because your salary jump is going to be at least four or five times what you were making as a resident. And so from a tax perspective, even if you have no retained earnings, in your corporation, it makes sense to set up a corporation for many reasons, which I which I have addressed with a accountant. Her name is Cherry Chan, and that podcast will come out probably in a month or two. But the reason why you want to set up a corporation is one, there's tax savings there. Two, if you wanted to play in real estate, you need a corporation because if you want to put it under your own name, there are so many risks that you can get into if I wanted to buy real estate under Vuketran versus buying it under Vuketran MPC. Two, mentioned earlier by, by yourself, Terry, you know, a life insurance inside a corporation is a no-brainer. And so even if you have zero retained earnings in your corporation that year, you should still buy a life insurance with, inside the corporation. So if you did anything, anything other than just buying life insurance, you should at least set up a corporation for that. And now the third one is what you've just mentioned there earlier now, Terry. If I am of the opinion that I wanna set up some sort of pension at some point going forward, whether it's IPP or whether it's PPP, I need to have historical data. I need to have a track record. And if I'm able to transfer all my RSPs in a one lump sum, in a one lump sum into my pension plan, then I want to transfer as much as I can. And so therefore, the longer I have my corporation, even though that corporation every year has $0 in retained earnings, the historical data and the longitudinal RRSP data that you have is much more efficient because you can transfer one lump sum all your RSP from those seven years, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it may be into this pension plan. And so therefore the tax savings from that alone, much, much outweigh whatever accounting fee that you incur for those five, 10 years. Correct, Terry? Exactly. And let me, let me just reiterate that point. The longer your corporation has been in existence and paying you a salary, the, the, the better, more substantial the transfer can be and the bigger the tax deduction. Now, you also raised another point that I want to address. So here's what I say that is contrary to accountants. For most healthcare professionals, doctors and dentists, health uh, accountants will say, take a dividend, do not take a salary. The mindset behind taking dividend 
is that you do not your corporation does not have to pay payroll tax and you do not have to pay CPP. And so there are some savings year after year for you taking a dividend as opposed for you taking a salary. When you take it as dividend or you take it as salary, from an individual standpoint, there's what we call tax equalization. And so it really doesn't make a difference whether I take it as a salary or as a dividend from a personal standpoint, I'll still be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate and the difference is negligible. But for the corporation, taking it out as a dividend means that you do not, the corporation does not have to pay payroll tax and does not have to pay CPP, which most accountants see that as a huge, huge benefit. And so you're saving about $5,000 a year on not paying CPP. But to do a pension plan, it has to come out as a salary. It cannot come out as a dividend. And so if you're taking the dividend strategy, please keep this in mind that if you are taking a dividend strategy only, you cannot ever do a pension plan, whether it's IPP or PPP. You are saving $5,000 a year for not paying CPP, but you will forego all the other tax benefits that a pension can offer you. And those tax benefit more than outweighs the $5,000 a year that you're saving on CPP. And we are just talking about IPP. When I'm going to be talking about PPP, which Terry, you wanted to talk about, when we talk about PPP, there are even more tax savings. That is, it's going to blow your mind. You know, depending on what your plans are for down the road, uh, I think you make a lot of good points. Well, listen, Terry, you know, I've said it before. Our problem is not an accumulation problem. Our problem is a distribution problem. And the distribution problem is due to taxes. Having a pension plan implemented inside a corporation is one of the strategies to relieve that tax burden. Regardless of that $5,000 a year that you pay in CPP is chump change in comparison to the tax burden that we will have 30, 40 years down the road. And so if we are using the dividend strategy only, we are very, very short-sighted and not looking far enough into the future. Agreed. Agreed. I would, I would, go, the, I would go the route you're talking. Now, there's no reason why you can't do half salary and half dividend, right? There's no reason why you can't do that. But the moment you go salary above, what's the number, uh, Terry? I think it's above 70000 You've already maxed out on your P- CPP payment anyways. Uh, it's it's uh, somewhere in the uh, $60,000 range, fifty-five dollars to $60,000 range. Oh, so not not too much to meet it. So the moment you take fifty-five to sixty thousand out in salary, you already paid the maximum of your CPP. And so for most of us, we don't live on fifty-five thousand to sixty thousand. We live on much more than that. Yeah, and I mean so, the the numbers the number because don't forget you pay you pay the corporate and the personal roughly what's it come up to uh, six grand tops. Six grand. You're paying out six grand every year. But 30 years down the line, uh, you're, you're getting so much more in tax benefit. But I'm talking about 30 years down the line. Don't forget, if we have an IPP or we have a PPP, there are many tax deductions that can happen in that same year. And so the six grand that you're paying 
will be offset by the tax benefit that you'll be able to deduct that same year through a IPP or PPP. And don't forget, I mean, the CPP is not necessarily just a tax. I mean, it is an investment because you're going you're gonna to be able to uh, receive a Canada pension plan down the road. Exactly. So you are paying. And in fact, like you said, you are investing into your future. Yeah. So I was talking to another financial advisor. I'm sorry, I, I went behind your back, Terry. <laughs> I did talk to another financial advisor and what they said was the um, the impact of the CPP. So what you're getting in CPP is equivalent to a fund that will provide you guaranteed 4%, 4.5%. And so try to find an investment out there that gives you a guaranteed 4 to four and a half percent year after year for 30 years. I know one. Which one? The participating whole life ah, yes. insurance. Yes, but you know that there are a lot of people who are against that, right? There are the term and invest the rest group out there uh, that do not believe in uh, permanent life insurance. So let's forget about that group. Let's move let's on. Just, let's just move <laughs> on. Let's just talk about you know, what investment can I find that gives me four to four and a half percent year after year, year after year, guaranteed for 30 years? There is not much thing that do, that gives you that. And so paying five grand or six grand year after year to have that type of uh, return uh, is an investment. Plus the fact that if I'm doing a salary, I now can participate in a pension plan. Whereas if I did that as a dividend, I never will be able to. And so for many reasons, one, incorporate as early as you can. It makes financial sense. And two, don't just take it out as a dividend. Don't take your salary out only as dividend. Do a combination of two so that you at least have a portion of it as a salary so that you can participate in your own pension plan. Correct. I agree 100%. That was a that was a long rant, Terry, but I it needed to come out of my chest. Well done. Okay, so you mentioned um, it doesn't make sense to do it before the age of forty, right? I wouldn't say it doesn't make sense. It probably just doesn't have the impact. Exactly, and so I just want people mm-hmm. to understand where that comes from. Uh, it comes from the fact that one, it's an actuary calculation, correct, Terry? That's right. And so. For us to build a pension, uh, this IPP, the actuary firm will actually calculate using that formula what your defined benefit will be based on years of work, rate of return, age, etc. And so it seems like the ideal age is somewhere between 40 and 45. So if someone who is just graduating and at the age of 32 and now wants to create an IPP, it may not be ideal for them financially and from a uh, defined benefit perspective. And so that's why the number 40 came up when you mentioned that. If you're coming out at 32, incorporate, start paying yourself a salary, set up your RSP, pay off your debt, buy a house, get married, have some kids. And by the time you're 40 to 45, you might have some, uh, you're, you know, by then, your income is steady. You, you know, you ideally you've paid off your student debt and uh, you've paid off most of your mortgage and uh, you've got a sizable RSP to start off your individual pension plan. 
you and I can um, can debate uh, quite a bit on whether we should pay down our student debt or not, and whether we should pay down our mortgage or not. But this is a another topic for another podcast. One one final thing on the base on uh, speaking of loans, uh, one of the taxable deductions that's available to a uh, small business owner is the uh, if you had to or wanted to uh, any loans taken out to uh, supplement your IPP is taxed is tax deductible. That the cost of that loan is tax deductible. So I, I would like you to repeat that, but also say it in a way that I can understand. So if if I'm um, I have my IPP set up, uh, but I'm taking a loan, you say, to in, invest in a product inside my IPP, the interest on that loan is tax deductible. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. Okay. So that is what I call good debt. Yes, that is good debt. That is good debt. Uh, I think we're done with IPP. What do you think? Yeah, I think that was a good overview. That was a good overview. Obviously, uh, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, and I'm not an actuary, so I can't give you the nitty gritty. But this is what a, was a high level view of what an IPP and a pension would look like inside a corporation. And Terry, thank you very much for taking us through this journey. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Uh, before we leave this topic, is there anything that's burning on your chest that you want to tell the audience in regards to pensions? It's something they should burst themselves in. They should understand what it is to a certain extent. I mean, this has provided an excellent high-level overview of what they are. And they should understand what the benefits are uh, before they make any decisions about whether they get into it. But certainly if they plan to not get into it, they gotta, they should uh, understand what they're, what the opportunities they're giving up. Exactly. So um, the last word is important, what opportunities they're giving up. And so understanding the opportunity costs is extremely important here. Yeah. Um, and if you're doing it yourself, you may not know this. And unfortunately, you're giving out a lot of opportunity. So thank you very much, Terry, for reminding us uh, to always assess opportunity cost, uh, because that's not something we do very often as physicians when it comes to our own finances. Very good. Okay, so I think it's a wrap up. What do you say? It's a wrap. Okay, it's thanks, Avu. Well, everybody, if you liked what we learned about IPP, Wait till you learn about PPP in our future shows. Talk to you guys next time. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.